John chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 31. If this was mere men that we were talking about, it'd be like a cliffhanger in a serial, uh, in a series. We find our hero in a real pickle now. He's just died. What will happen of him? What will become of him? But it's not. He is Jesus. He is fully man and fully God. And where we pick it up, we left off with it is finished from our last lesson. In verse 31, it says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Well, this is the word of the Lord, and will most certainly add his abundant gracious and magnified blessing to the reading of his holy truth. And, uh, well, as my backup is still starting up, let's pray. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, in Jesus' name, and for his sake, we thank you for the portion that's set before us. We ask you, Father, to guide us, um, minister to us, that as we worship you from the word today, we're, we're grateful that we have been able to worship you in song and uh, worship you also in prayer so far, and and uh, we ask that your word will be fruitful to our lives, that it'll be glorifying to you, exalting to the Lord Jesus, and that we may be apply it, uh, that we may be able to apply it to our everyday life, that we may glorify you in all that we, in all that we do, in our thinking, in our eating, in our uh, rising up from sleep, in our going down to sleep, in our working in everything that we do. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake we do pray. Amen. So. Oh, okay, there it goes. Operator error. So, ver- uh, the first part of verse 31, it speaks of the day of preparation. See, the, uh, the Passover technically doesn't start on the 14th. That is the eve of the fifteenth of the lunar of the lunar month. It's when the full moon is, when the barley is uh, in what they call aviv, according to Exodus chapter twelve. The Lord God, uh, Jehovah God, said, "This will be the beginning of months for you." When you see the barley that's in the ear, aviv in the Hebrew, when it's ripe for the picking, then that's going to be the first month. And it actually ends up being a, a really awesome and uh, uh, accurate calendar. And, uh, and I mentioned this, I was talking with Rick a, a week or two ago about this. I said, did you recognize this, that the, um, that the uh, calendar on the, from the biblical calendar, see, they have the rabbinical calendar, and that's what we follow now. The rabbis in Babylon in the 4th century 
300 or so BC, they put together a, a calendar because they had no more temple. Uh, they had the, the, they were mostly not in Israel, so they weren't looking at the barley harvest when that when the twelve months should be. And if the barley's not in harvest, because you know that the the lunar calendar only has like twenty eight days in it, twenty eight and point something, twenty eight and a quarter days, and then every few years, every three years or every four years, you got to throw in a thirteenth month in order for it to be uh, to work out right. And it ends up being more cal- more accurate than our solar calendar we make our solar calendar 365 days right with a uh with a leap year every four years we put in an extra day but the lunar calendar is very very accurate when god is in control of it it's somewhat accurate with the rabbis it's more accurate than the solar calendar but god's calendar is much more accurate you see when the barley is in harvest that is can only be determined by the sovereignty of God. Every plant that grows is by the sovereignty of God, unless you're in California and they think that everybody can grow an orange, an orange tree uh, because of the sunshine and so forth. But God gave them the soil and God gave them the, the tree. But see, when, when Jesus said in John chapter 12, going back a little bit, when, that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies... In other words, being buried, it brings forth much fruit. But you talk to somebody who knows agriculture and horticulture, and you study it out a little bit with what they have to say, but you ask somebody, so how does a seed bring forth a plant? And they'll go through all the things that happen. But I said, but how? How is that to happen? How does that happen that something that's dead becomes alive again? And they cannot tell you. They don't have an answer for it. In horticulture and agriculture, any of these people that have been studying for years and years and have all those letters behind their names, you know, PhD and all that other stuff, and all that education, they can't tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's because of the gospel. All of the creation exists for a death and resurrection experience, a death and resurrection reality, because the gospel is even in the small seed that goes to the ground and is buried and then springs forth. It just, uh, apparently it germinates. They'll tell you, well, it germinates and it does this and with the soils and the nutrients in the soil. And it, But how does it come to life when once it's dead? They don't know. But I know, the Bible tells me, it's by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was placed there by a sovereign God to proclaim the gospel because God would become a man, he would die as a man, he would be placed into the ground, and that he would rise again, ascend into heaven with the promise to return. And even in something as simple as that, there is the gospel. So the day of preparation on the 14th day of the of the lunar calendar is when they would slaughter the lambs from twilight to twilight. Um, and the Lord probably from uh, the, uh, he had his last supper that we saw earlier in John chapters, uh, John chapters 13 through 16 has his last, you know, Passover meal with his disciples. And that's when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered one by one until the sundown, which would be three o'clock in the afternoon on this Wednesday when the Lord Jesus is crucified. The preparation day was to, pre- was to prepare all those lambs that were inspected four days earlier on the, on 
what would be today, Palm Sunday, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The term used to apply to any day before the Sabbath, because the Jews who, even today when I was in Los Angeles, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, because I was dressed in black slacks, a white shirt, and a black coat, and had a beard, uh, I was approached by many Jews saying, come, come, where do you live? Come have Shabbat dinner with us. <laughs> because it was approaching 3 o'clock, and they're getting ready to go on home. And it, to the Jews, it's like a commandment that you must show hospitality. And if there's a Jew walking around at 2 in the afternoon, you need to invite him home. Because he might not make it to his home. They don't, they're so worried that they'll break the law, they don't want you breaking the law. And that I saw it, and I didn't do anything about it. So that's a preparation, though, because the Friday, on that Friday, as a preparation day before the Sabbath, they would make, cook all their meals so they don't have to cook on, on Saturday. They would have to cook enough for the Friday night meal, and they'd have to cook enough for the three meals that, are on, uh, that you'll have on Sabbath, on Saturday, to get them to Sunday morning. But here, as the, the, uh, the uh, Feast of the Lord, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 2, it says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Literally, it's Jehovah's appointed times. Uh, Moedi Jehovah. Uh, Moedi or Moedim, Moedim is appointed times, and so this is one of the appointed times of the Lord, uh, the the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So at sundown on the fourteenth, which actually takes into takes you into the fifteenth, the very middle of the month, that's the first day of unleavened bread, which is the Passover, and you eat it at night because the day is counted by the Jew from sundown to sundown, twenty four hours. Um, it's uh, evening and morning as the creation account. Evening and morning is day one. Evening and morning is the second day. The second part of verse 31 where it says that, it says uh, they didn't want the bodies up on the Sabbath day, on, on the Sabbath. And so every day that you don't do any work, is a, any day that's a holy convocation is a Sabbath. So it's not just the Saturday Sabbath. Of course, uh, of course, it's speaking of the Thursday. Jesus crucified on Wednesday. It's speaking of the Thursday. That is a Sabbath because it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And John wants to make sure that his his gospel is not just to any. It's not to the Jews. It's to the church at large, Jews and Gentiles. So he makes sure that they understand. He says, "For that Sabbath was a high day." At Shabbat Hagadol is what they would call the, for the Jews, and many of the Jews today call it Friday, uh, the, the Friday before their Sabbath. But it also applies to, uh, among the ancient Jews, it applied to every day that preceded a high holy day. The day before the, the, the uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is on the 10th day of the seventh month, that day would, uh, the the Yom Kippur, no matter what day it fell on, would be considered a Sabbath or a high day. Um, it indicates, uh, indicating it wasn't a weekly Sabbath when he says this, but the first day of the Feast of Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, according to Leviticus 23, verses 5-8. through eight. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, 
is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work or any servile work in the old King James Version. But you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. So in the seven-day feast of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the very first day was a Sabbath, and the very last day was a Sabbath. So you could end up having three Sabbath days um, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because you'll have the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Saturday Sabbath, and then the last day. And in fact, you will have three Sabbaths every week except for one when the Feast of Unleavened Bread either ends or begins on a Saturday. Then you'll only have two. And by implication, verse 31 tells us the Wednesday crucifixion, that at twilight, or uh, between the evenings, more literally from Exodus chapter 12, Matthew 12 verses 38 to 40 says that, uh, then, with, as, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for Jesus to be crucified on Friday, that would only allow him to be in the tomb for uh, one day. Um, At the very most, one day. And he said three days and three nights. So uh, the the issue with that is is that um, that's going to cause us to have all kinds of other problems with things as far as the Lord fulfilling them. if somebody doesn't believe it, even and I've presented this for year, for over 20 years, for 22 years as a pastor, and then as several years as a missionary, I've presented this. Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, um, but uh, somebody doesn't believe it. I say, as long as you believe that he was crucified and he was raised from the dead, then you're you know you have salvation. The difficulty will be is that how can you believe anything else that Jesus says? He says the only sign given is three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Um, Because the day from evening to morning, that would cause Jesus to be, if he's crucified on Wednesday, he's going to rise again on Saturday night. And the women that came, as we'll end up seeing in John chapter 20, and and, uh, it's also in the account for Mark and in, I think, Luke's account makes mention that it was before it was dawn. It's still dark. Mark's account says that they went to buy spices, and the only day they could do that was on Friday morning because Thursday was a Sabbath, Saturday was a Sabbath. Jesus is out of the tomb on Sunday morning before it's light. Where do they have time to buy the spices? Um, so, if uh, now that I beat that thing to death, <laughs> I only mention it every year, so. Don't, I hope you don't get t- too tired of hearing it. Now let's look at five truths regarding Christ's broken bones. Now the interesting thing is that the word bone in Hebrew is etzem. You got that, young people? The word bone in Hebrew is etzem. 
Etsem. Go ahead, say it with me. Etsem. Isn't that a fun word? Etsem. It also means self-same. It means bone, but it also means self-same. Like when it mentions that, that when in Exodus chapter 12, that when they departed Egypt 430 years on the self-same day, it was a bone of contention or of non-contention. It was, a, they use the same, it's the same word that's used for that. That the day that Jacob went down to Egypt, 430 years later on that first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread when they left Egypt, it was the self-same day. And that word that's used is etsem, which means either bone or the very same. So as far as bone, we want to look at the bone today. Christ's unbroken bones. In fact, I think, I don't know what I called this message. Christ's unbroken bones. Because we'll, we'll have to take both of them and there's overlap. His pierced side is the bloodshed, but also the broken bones. Why were his bro- bones not broken? This is the question I asked the Lord. And one of the reasons, again, why I think that maybe I wasn't fishing yesterday was because the Lord was ministering to me about his unbroken bones. Uh, so I added some things to my notes yesterday. First, it's historic. I want to cover it, and in, in, if we have time, in, and I don't think we do. We've already gone to, uh, with our Holy War reading, we've gone to, at seven, it's five after seven. But here are the main points. I know somebody's, some folks are taking notes, like Sister Vicki. We'll look at the historical background and accompanying scripture. The Number two, we'll look at scriptural prophecies and fulfillment. Number three, the implications concerning Christ. Number four, the implications concerning man. And then five, the application for believers today. I don't know if we're going to even cover all of that today. Historical background accompanying Scripture. Now, Judea, as a Roman province, was extended certain courtesies by Rome uh, by its... uh, by its governors, and uh, Roman polytheism actually allowed uh, the Jews to worship Jehovah God, especially during what's called Pax Romana. Pax Romana meant peace in Rome, and from Augustus Caesar to Nero Caesar, until he went crazy, uh, Augustus Caesar to Ciro Caesar, there was a time of peace. Uh, there were no wars like they were in the days of Julius Caesar, uh, and there, there would be in the days following Nero with uh, Claudius and Caligula and the, and the Caesars after that. So during this peace, um, uh, during this peacetime, they extended to, Jew, to the Jews in Jerusalem a little bit of courtesy because of the religion. Since they are polytheistic, many Jews, many senators in Rome, or excuse me, not, not many Jews, many senators in Rome, many Romans, they thought, well, since we celebrate, celebrate and worship many gods, maybe that's one of the gods and we don't want to offend them. So therefore, in order not to offend the Jewish God, the Jewish leaders were allowed to govern and dispense justice for crimes without except, uh, with the only exception being capital punishment. And, and we know that from uh, chapter 18, verses 31 and 32. Remember, if uh, I jog your memory, memory a little while back, that in chapter 18, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the judge, uh, Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
Verse 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Well, he wasn't going to die of old age. You see, in 6 AD, um, Herod Archelaus, which was one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, because he was so terrible as a ruler and as a leader, they removed him from government as, as the Idumean king, and they banished him for his misrule, and Judah came under direct Roman rule. In other words, they took away uh, capital punishment and installed a governor, and that was in 6 AD. And there is a uh, tradition that says that, uh, is, I think Josephus actually mentions it, or or Philo, that that at that time, they uh, many Jewish priests and the high priests marched around Jerusalem weeping and, and casting dirt in the air and crying that they said that the scepter has been removed from Judah and Shiloh has not come. But since Jesus was born in 2 BC, he was already, uh, he was already eight years old and here on the planet when this happened. So he had already come. Other concessions that the uh, Jews had was that public nudity was prohibited. Uh, Seneca the Younger, who lived from 4 BC to 65 AD, he was a Roman philosopher and statesman, and he wrote this in in one of his, uh, he wrote this in a letter, actually. He says, I see crosses there, not just one kind of cross, but made in different ways. Some have their victims with their head down to the ground. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms, end quote. Not just one kind of cross. Now, there, was, uh, there are four crosses that the Romans used. When the first one is called, Rome, uh, uh, is called uh, Crus Simplex. Cruz simplex would be like if you had a letter I. It's just a pole straight up and down, and the hands would be tied, and uh, nails would go through the wrists uh, in uh, up over their head. That's uh, cruz simplex. The second one was cruz comissa. Cruz comissa would be like a letter T. It'd be like you know, like this. And uh, so that was Cruz Comissa. Cru- uh, the one we're most familiar with uh, that's easy to affix uh, a titulus or a title, like Jesus had his title, uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's the one that we know of that looks more like the Latin cross. Uh, that was called Cruz Emissa. And then the, on the top part were the stipes, the long piece that goes up. That's where the title would go to that, that uh, has the accusation for the crime. And then the last one uh, that we know of is uh, Cruz Decusada. Cruz Decusada was the one that looks like an X, uh, the one that they commonly call St. Andrew's Cross, the one that Andrew, the brother of Peter, was said to have been crucified on in uh, Ireland or Great Britain. I think it was Great Britain. Uh, anyway, those are the different types of crosses. And while the clothes were typically stripped from the executed and and, uh, crucified uh, completely naked all over, in Jerusalem for a period of time they were allowing for them to, they strip off their, they take off their outer garment, which is what they gambled with for uh, below the cross for Christ. They took off the tunic, uh, but they would leave what would be the short breeches, like underwear, the loincloth thing for the sake of the Jews, because it was just, that would be a travesty for them 
uh, they would be considered, they consider themselves sinning by just looking upon the nude body. And so that was a, con- uh, a concession uh, more than likely given to them. We know that from John chapter 21, verse 7, this is how it was thought of and it was recorded um, historically in the Bible in John 21, verse 7, that when after Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, that when the disciples went out fishing, in verse 7, it says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, in the English Standard Version, and threw himself into the sea. He not only had his outer garment off, but he would have had his tunic in a place where it was. he had maybe his cotton breeches on, then his underwear underneath that, you know, or loincloth. But he had his naked topside showing, and that would have been unthinkable. So he threw his outer garment on because he was naked. And if it's the Lord, I don't want to be, appear naked before the Lord. Uh, also, there was uh, there's accounts of uh, some suggestions from archaeological, you know, rec- recorded things concerning crucifixion, because they crucified women too, and they would have stripped them naked. But in provinces like Judea, um, they would have turned her, they would have left some clothing on her in Judea, but in other places, uh, in, in, rather than crucify her very openly, they would turn her to face the pole so only her backside is showing. Uh, it covers her up at least a little bit more modestly, because uh, even apart from the Jews, it was considered... That was that was really considered, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, inappropriate. The archaeological discovery concerning crucifixion uh, in 1968, archaeologist Dr. Vasilios uh, Tsaferis, his name is spelled T-Z-A-F-E-R-I-S, if you wanted to look it up. 1968, he excavated some tombs at Givat, Hamivtar in the northeastern Jerusalem. And so an ossuary, uh, young people, an ossuary is basically just a box. It could be made of wood, but mostly in Jerusalem they're made out of stone. And an ossuary was found in 1968 at Givat Hamivtar in northeast Jerusalem. It was the ossuary of Yehochanan ben Hagdol, H-A-G-D-O-L is one of the spellings of it in English. And as it was discovered, it contained the evidence remains of his crucifixion. Uh, One right heel uh, calcaneum, which is the heel bone, was pierced by a 19 centimeter iron nail, that's seven and a half inches, with traces of wood at both ends. And it was bent at the end. This is uh, normally like when Jesus would be taken off the cross in just several verses, they would pull the nails out. But this one was hit with so much force, it was bent. And so when they saw that this was going through the heel bone, his, uh, whereas mostly we think that in some of the pictures they show that the feet are like one on top of another. No, they were turned sideways. And so with Genesis chapter 3, verse 
15, where it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. His heel was literally bruised because the feet were turned sideways, and the one seven and a half to nine and a half inch nail would have gone through, literally through his heel and his heel bone. And that's how it was found there. And because it was hit with so much force that the nail was bent at the end, they couldn't remove it. And so when they put his remains in the little ossuary coffin, when they found it, hey, there you go. There's the, there is the evidence. So the crucifixion details um, that when Jesus died, the reason why they're breaking the legs is because it was a cruel death. And by having them, uh, having the criminal, uh, according to Rome, having the criminal up on a cross naked um, up to three days, and I hear some accounts up to even three weeks on the Appian Way, that they place all the weight on the nail in the foot as they're stretched out in order to catch a breath, in order to speak if they were going to speak, but most people are not like Jesus, speaking wonderful blessings while he's dying. But they keep themselves alive, and they put the weight on that nail in order to build up enough negative pressure to be able to take a breath. You've got to take a breath in order to say things. And so here our Lord had said seven, eight wonderful things of blessing for us. And yet, it's a cruel death it's a tormented death, and it is a death by suffocation because or starvation. They might get dehydrated enough to where they can't eat or they'll suffocate to death because they just don't have the strength to put the weight into that nail. So the breaking of the legs was done um, as a courtesy, again, to those in Jerusalem. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23, it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his death shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile... Um, you, uh, you shall not defile your land, and that the Lord... You shall not defile... And the, that the Lord your God, the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance by keeping somebody hanging on a tree. In other words, uh, keep him from desecrating the high holy day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken, as we see right here in chapter 19. Now, the Romans would break the legs of some of the other prisoners outside of Jerusalem. Uh, if they were on a continued march, they took prisoners, they executed them, uh, but they're not going to leave them for others. They might just go ahead, break their legs, make sure that they're dead, and then move on so that somebody doesn't come and steal their bodies away. Uh, and you know, and survive or uh, allow them to survive. And there are accounts of those who have been taken off the cross um, in this cruel death and have been nursed to health. So they might they might break the legs, but they did it in Israel uh, as a courtesy here, and they had to ask because it wasn't a usual thing, because mostly the governors since six A.D. wouldn't do a public execution just prior to a, the celebrate, a religious celebration for the Jews. So this was unusual. 
that this would happen. So that's the historical background. I'll go one more. The scriptural prophecies and fulfillment, the prophecies of the Passover uh, lamb, giant, uh, remember that he, the prophecies on this fulfillment are, come from the fact that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. And so he is, the, the, the Passover lamb from Exodus chapter 12 is a type and foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Exodus 12, verse 46 says, It shall be eaten in one house, and we covered this uh, last Sunday, or uh, the Sunday before last when we had our uh, communion on, on the last Sunday of March. You, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The Lord repeats this in Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. He says, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. So you get the idea that when you have the Passover lamb, not a bone is to be broken. Um, he says, you're not to break any of its bones according to all the statutes for the Passover. They shall keep it. So the prophecies of the Messiah um, concerning this is in Psalm 34, verse 20, Psalm of David, where he says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So those are the prophecies that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus not having his bones broken. Remember, he says, it is finished, and he gave up the... He gave up the ghost, it says, or he gave up his spirit. In verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Um, when the soldier came by, um, they broke the legs in verse 32 of the one and then the other. But when they came in verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They got permission from Pilate. Pilate says, okay, yeah, you could have the legs broken so that they can be taken down. But they didn't break his legs, so they pierced his side, which was not a usual practice. They didn't typically do that. That fulfilled another scripture, but we'll have to cover that next time because I'm not even going to get through these notes. Why Why would Jesus' legs, uh, why would his bones need to stay intact? This is the thing I asked the Lord, and this is what I believe that he gave me. Um, the implications concerning Christ. By contrast, broken bones reflect the painful damage of sin against God. Its sorrowful effects by its separating the soul who, was, who has committed sin from God's presence. We have a passage of Scripture that speaks of that. that. That the Word of God, which all speaks about Jesus because He's the living Word, the crucified Word, the ris risen Word, the ascended word and the word that's coming again, the word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, the dividing asunder of joint and marrow, even to the soul and spirit. It speaks of the separation that the word gives because of sin. That's one of them. Psalm 51 verse 8, even David cries out, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. It speaks of repentance, it speaks of judgment, and it speaks of conviction, as in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the, the broken bones. And so in contrast to that, did Jesus have anything to repent of? 
No, he was the sinless man. Did Jesus have any? Uh, did Jesus commit any sin where the word must convict him of sin? Absolutely not. And did the pain of of uh, did he committed any commit any sin in order to feel the pain that goes right to the sh- shuddering of your bones? Have you ever had that where you felt like you know like your heart aches so bad that maybe even your bones felt bad? I know that uh, I have a time or two. Because Christ's bones were not broken, this implies his perfection as sinless man. Again, by contrast, broken bones reflect the fickle plight of those who are easily led astray by evil leaders and false prophets into idolatry. I'd ask you to turn there, but we don't have much time. This is what we're going to end with, and then we'll go to the last two points next week. Uh, Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is what I'll ask you to read next uh, uh, this week. Consider this. Micah 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Verse 2 says, You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, verse 3, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces, that part in verse 3, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron. Verse 4 says, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. In other words, Micah's talking about these false prophets who are leading people into idolatry and such idolatry that they had forsaken the Lord that their bones the the expression that their bones would be were broken that by their following after these false prophets and following after this idolatry that it had broken their bones that's how bad their sin was and that is the implications concerning Christ the next thing the, the last two that we'll cover next time are the implications concerning man how does this relate to us and then, and then finally, the applications for believers today. How does knowing that Christ's bones were unbroken, and they were unbroken for a reason, and that our bones break uh, because of sin, because of idolatry, uh, because of conviction of sin, because there's a need of repentance, how it applies unto us, and what a, what a blessing it is that we have that that we have Christ to look upon. So that's what we'll, we'll cover. Uh, any questions, sister? No, okay. I thought you were getting ready to raise your hand. Any questions concerning what we've covered, concerning Christ is broken? Bo- yes, yeah, sister. Simeon. Yes, Simeon. Luke chapter 2. And then the other lady, Anna. Anna, yeah, or Anna, yeah, or Hannah. Hannah. And so did the Pharisees just not believe them? Um, 
there probably it doesn't record that there were any Pharisees around when they did it. It was probably a spectacle. They saw a little baby a child, uh, 2 BC. Uh, we don't know if there were any Pharisees around, any Sadducees. Uh, but um, even when they were around, when Jesus was grown up, they didn't believe him. Uh, many of them did. Uh, we find out actually here in John chapter 19 that there was a uh, uh, disciple in secret, Joseph of Arimathea, um, that he was uh, uh, that he was in Nicodemus. They were both disciples, disciples maybe in secret, but they were both Pharisees. Yes, sister. They believed that because they didn't see the Messiah when the scepter left, that they weren't ruling on their own, that Rome came in and formed a government that ruled over them. In 6 AD, there is a tradition, um, historical tradition that says that they, when that happened, uh, several of the priests marched around Jerusalem weeping and throwing dust in the air saying, uh, woe is unto us that uh, the scepter has left uh, has left Israel and Shiloh, which is the uh, another the Genesis forty nine name for the Messiah. The Messiah hasn't come, but the Messiah had come. He was still an eight year old boy if he was born in two BC. Um, good questions. So does that help? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or comments? When I will share with you this so that you're not going home just with all this stuff that some of it seems a little dry. The more we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and keep our gaze upon him, the better off, I promise you, the better off that you will be. Relationships will be restored, those that are broken. The um, fellowship that seems distant will, be, will come together. Um, life at its hardest We'll start finding a way when we have our eyes upon Christ. And there are so many things that will drag us away from from the cross. I was just watching, Lisa and I were watching a documentary today about the Jesus, Jesus music of the Jesus movement of the late 60s, 1968 to, to today. Contemporary Christian music. And it was so sad some of the things that we had seen, that there were people that were caught in, in scandals in their lives, uh, folks getting divorced. And because they were placed on a platform, the church was not just rejecting their music, they were rejecting these people. You know, God forbid that we be such a church that when if, if one of our young people, say, fell into a place of sin, that, that we would kick them out on the streets and not embrace them and, and really show them Christ. And I was saddened for that. But mostly I was saddened by when they showed some of these artists who had made it big and then brought, been brought down and everything in there. You know, for them it was, and this is the thing, and I heard this time and again towards the end, it was all about the music. For young people, it's never about the music. It's never about your singing. It's never about your prayers. Those things come along, but it's all about Jesus. It's all about his atoning death, resurrection, ascension, and his coming again. It's all about the truth of the gospel. It must be center. It must be first. It must be last. It must be everything to us. And if it's not everything to us, it's nothing at all. 
And then when Christ's cross is not the most important truth in your life, then you will be led astray by any and every kind of idol. And it will be unto you like broken bones, the broken bones of idolatry in Micah chapter 3. I promise you that 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 will that will take place and sadly I've seen it over the last what is it 20 almost 30 years of ministry on the mission field in the Philippines and then for the last 22 years in the pastoral ministry I've seen it time and again and sadly I've seen churches turn their back on backs on people because they didn't have the gospel in the forefront of their lives and being foremost in their hearts Christ wasn't everything to them. I love you so much. By a supernatural love, it's not in me to love you. But with everything that I have, and as terrible as I am as a, as a, as a man, and as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, the one thing that I know that I must do, as long as there is breath in me by this privilege I have to be called to be your pastor, I will do all that I can, as silly as I may be, to keep the cross in front of you. Because that's our only, our only answer. Christ and Him crucified. And so uh, I ask you to pray for me with that regard. Pray that I will be the kind of pastor that, that you need, which is a pastor that will always have the cross in front of me so that I can bring the cross in front of you. Okay? And if you are praying for me for that, I think that we'll be able to walk this life until the Lord Jesus returns, because that cross is, is it's everything. Let's pray. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, in Jesus' name and for His sake, Lord, You bled, You died, You suffered, wrath for sins that are so deserving of each and every one of us. What love the Father has given unto us that we might be called the children of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll minister unto each and every soul here today, and especially our young people. Minister unto them to, to bring them along to be your very own treasure. Um, uh, show them the truths of your scripture of the scriptures to, to show them Christ, show them the truth of the cross and uh, and make it alive to each and every one of us in Jesus name and for his sake we do pray amen.